0: Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. I'm Jenny Bully. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the Californian teenager who couldn't surf but invented surf pop, the stereo pioneer who could only hear in mono, the man who embodied the contradictions of post-war America, he is Brian Wilson. Of all the musicians we write about in Mojo, one of the most commonly referred to as a songwriting genius has to be Brian Douglas Wilson. Brian's unique approach to songwriting and recording has been celebrated and puzzled over by generations of music fans and scholars around the world. Uh, With me to share their own crackpot theories and feelings about Brian Wilson are Mojo's non-surfing editor, John Mulvey. Hello. And Andrew Mayle, Mojo's senior associate editor.
1: Uh, Oh, hello.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Both of whom have interviewed Brian. Uh, We're going to focus on Brian's innovations firstly with surf rock and then pet sounds onto Smile and beyond. So, Andrew, it's 1963. Brian has co-written, arranged, produced and sung on 28 top 40 hits, including Surfer Girl. But it's not just his prolific work rate that marks him out as special in the early 60s, is it?
1: No, I mean, it's remarkable that he's still just a 19, 20 year old kid when all this is happening. Um, Mm. He's still caught up in an abusive relationship with his manager father, Murray. Mm. He's developing an unhealthy obsession with Phil Spector. Um, (laughs) But he's... Already writing and producing his own songs, he's already bringing in session musicians like Hal Blaine and Carol Kay. And "Surfer Girl" is a really interesting song, and also the "Surfer Girl" album as well, because it's this point where Brian is starting to replicate what he called the sounds that he heard in his head. I mean, Brian, very shy child, wanted to please the other members of the family, so he initially starts out writing songs. He started out writing surf songs to please his brother Dennis, because Dennis was a surfer. But now he's starting to write songs for himself. And finally he can express all this pent-up emotion that he was too shy to admit in real life. Um, and also there's this desire to make his dad proud of him, which will never come. But he suddenly suddenly starts believing in doing things his own way. So, And there's this extra melancholy that comes into the songs, because he's using these extended harmonies where the the, the voices... Are so extended that they sound close to crying on on, on tracks mm-hmm. like "In My Room" or "Lonely yes. Sea" and "Surfer Girl," and you've got this sort of fragility, this this vulnerability. But also on, um, if we go back to the "Surfer Girl" album, on a track like mm-hmm. "Our Car Club," you can hear these the start of the little mini Americana symphonies that he expands on in "Smile." Mm-hmm. So all the ideas are, are coming in. But one one of the things you have to consider is that there's this flip side. He's also on this gruelling treadmill. He's writing and producing three albums a year, twice as many singles, mm. constant touring. So even at this point where his creativity is starting to peak, it's also starting to fracture at the same time. Mm. And he's also massively
2: insecure yeah. uh, about his innovations. Absolutely. true. Yeah. It's kind of, I think, um when I interviewed him about 25 years ago, he actually referred to... Surfer Girl itself as a prissy little trip. Yeah, and that's what he right. thought that the rest of the Beach Boys, how they perceived this music that he was making. If he yes. wasn't making songs about cars and girls and the occasional moped, yeah. then then, <laughs> then he was then he was kind of letting them down. Yes, could be, that, right. and so yeah, while this he this need
1: wha- to please, yeah. Yeah, mm. it's really strong. But
0: in a strange way, he's intensely competitive as well, though, isn't he? It's yeah. That that's kind of need to do well that probably and comes that, from Murray. And that
1: yeah. grows as well, and that yeah. kind of, which we'll see, that kind of suddenly starting to cut other members of the band out. But yeah, I mean, he right. gets that from, yeah, trying to keep everybody happy yeah. initially and, want, and wanting mm. people to like him. But mm.
2: that's that, that's the thing. I think so much of what he did was based on compromise at the same yeah. time as innovation. But one mm. of the most remarkable things about the Beach Boys music especially this early music is that it actually shows how great art can come out of compromise and yeah. expediency yeah. yeah that he's making these symphonic kind of constructs on what's ostensibly a production line yeah yeah where he's being whipped into lo- and you know the the insane productivity of that period yeah. Yeah. and you know the absolute
1: cynicism in the subject matter in that well, also, you know, say the the cynicism of somebody like Mike Love, who is also at the same time contributing <laughs> great lyrics, you know, and and, and, and a, yeah. you know, and a, and a brilliant voice. So you have these kind of they are sites of conflict. These yeah. these records, you know, and almost you could argue that's what makes them great. That it's the fact that he hasn't got complete control. That he's got something mm. to f- fight against, like his own demons, but mm. also. His family and the other members of the band, and he's
0: operating within this kind of '60s singles market that's incredibly intense, and everybody has yeah. to come up with a new song every few months. And and yeah.
2: a time where the the first kind of stirrings of the kind of singer songwriter auteur yeah. vision, which is in, mm. which which obviously he shares many of those kind of traits in terms of the individuality of his vision, but at the same mm. time he's in a he's in a kind of a machine, which makes him a kind of
1: anti-Dylan,
2: yeah. effectively. But he's writing. Oh, right pretty much
1: all of, you know, all of these albums, you know, nine uh, out of the ten songs he's right you know, he's pretty much Every writing time, himself. Yeah. 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 And OK, with those first three albums, half of those, you know, side twos on those albums are not very good. But the fact that he's putting that much effort into creating them at a time mm-hmm. when, you know, even the Beatles are filling their, you know, yes, early albums absolutely. up with cover versions, the you know.
0: Um, So John, in 1964, Brian has a mid-air panic attack and refuses to tour with the Beach Boys, a situation that goes on for almost a decade. And how does that change the course of Beach Boys' history?
2: Well, it frees him up, I guess. It's, Mm. It's like...
0: Certainly gives him more time.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Well, although although the speed with which he was actually making those records, as Andrew was just talking about, it's like he Mm -hmm. he was he was pumping them out out at the same time as actually being on the road. Yeah. So it never really stopped (laughs) him that much. It's kind of, but yeah, he he suddenly got a little bit more latitude to build these mini symphonies, essentially, and and also I guess while that that insecurity, which I think is critical to his art, Mm. was still there. He also just had a bit more freedom to actually delve deeper into that. So I guess about four months, five months after, mm-hmm. after that kind of first kind of breakdown or that first visible yeah. public breakdown anyway. Yeah. He released today, which I, I which album was that? Andrew, is it about ninth or tenth? <laughs> it? Probably, it's yeah. It's, it's sixty-five. Yeah, March yeah. sixty-five. And really, it's like yeah, eight. Eight <laughs> is that all? Oh, it's <laughs> there. it's like, but uh, it, although in fairness, he did release the, the ninth, Summer Days and Summer Nights, literally three months after that. So it's <laughs> right. kind of uh, maybe four months. Uh, mm. Give him a little bit more time. Amazing, amazing work rate. Anyway, but but yes, yeah, st- today starts kind of formulating a lot more. It starts crisp crystallising that vision of that sort of orchestral sweep of his music and also making that insecurity into kind of cultural capital,
1: yeah. effectively. Sure. And, he, you know, also he's bringing a narrative arc into play. You know, I mean, kind of the, you read a lot about Pet Sounds being the first concept album. Mm. But if you look at the narrative structure of today apart from the final track, Ball Session with Big Daddy, Mm. it is the story of a romance from first meeting to kind of, you know, ending. And it has that kind of narrative sweep and it has kind of the highs and lows Mm. of a relationship. It has, you know, the celebration and it has sadness. It's the pain of growing up as musical epiphanies, you know. And
2: And also taking, like, formal risks in the way that the music's actually produced yeah. and created as well. I mean, the, the bit that I always get hung up on mm. is that point, and it's towards the end of um, When I Grow Up to Be a Man, where mm. the music just kind of stops. Mm. But it's not, it's not a traditional false ending. It's kind of, it's, it's like punctuation in the middle of the song. It's, it, it's not as if there's just like some you know just some kind of little jokey end bits after that it's like the critical refrain actually comes in at, mm. after that zero, you know when so
0: can we kind of trace back his modular
1: recording i think so to, yeah to that, yeah. Point. To, to that mm. point yeah and mm-hmm. i think the, which was
2: a nightmare for radio
1: programmers yeah, yeah. immediately <laughs> yeah, <start laughs> get
2: grief from that as well because you know because yeah. there's that dead airspace mm. at a time where that was anathema
1: But I think those records are fascinating because he's still operating within the top 40 world. You know, he's still pumping out sort of radio hits at the same Mm. time as bringing in all these sort of production experiments and harmonic experiments as well. Mm. And then by Summer Days and
2: Summer Nights, he, he, he's written California Girls, Yeah, which is, which is so trivialised. But it's like at some point in the 90s, I became absolutely obsessed with the first 20 seconds of yeah. California Girls, yeah. Yeah. to the degree where I wouldn't actually bother playing the rest of the song. <laughs> I would just, would just kind of play that over to you again and again and again, because it's like mm-hmm. the most absolutely sort of rapturously beautiful bit of symphonic mm-hmm.
1: Musical writer. I think you brought up a really important point because I think the beauty of that song is that so many people just hear it as a pop song. It can exist as a pure pop song. And yet at the same time, you can break it down and just marvel at its creation as well.
0: Absolutely. There's that lovely story, isn't there, about him taking his first LSD trip at his friend's house and spending some time with his head under a pillow. You know, worrying about how, you know how he's scared of his parents, well, and then yeah. emerging to sit down at the piano and write the you know dee, 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 yeah, dee yeah, bit, yeah. and then just play it and play it and play it, much like you did later with the whole intro. Exactly, <laughs> again and again and again. The other
2: the other the other secret which he told me about, which I, I mm-hmm. mean, I think one of the things that people miss about Brian Wilson is his sense of humour. And his profoundly weird sense of humour. So, even even <laughs> see in smile in, later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll yeah. get onto that. But in, even in his more lucid interviews, he has a kind of a a, a kind of crafty way of t- saying things, which means that you're never quite sure how much truth he's talking. But one mm. thing that he said to me, and I know he said it one or two other things, is that his secret of his creativity was that he abstained from having orgasms.
0: That oh, basically, really?
2: that basically, it was all, it was all this kind of that that it was a next level of kind of repre, repressed sexual kind of libido. Basically, wow, yeah. so it's almost like this kind of tantric obsession mm. where every all his kind of creative juices. Were literally being channeled into the music. Well, yeah, when
1: well, well, you that... listen to something like "Good Vibrations," that makes complete sense, <laughs> doesn't <laughs> it? You know, both. But you know, this in the sound of it and in the title as well. Absolutely, you know. and yeah. sets a precedent for "Hang On to Your Ego." As yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
2: I mean, I think this is one thing that he did ascribe to his father. It's one of the best bits of advice that his father ever gave him. He, he, well, he, keep he, one like, foot on
0: the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <well. laughs> So um, Pet Sounds obviously was extraordinary for the studio techniques that Brian was using, but um, is there anything else going on on Pet Sounds that hadn't been done before, Andrew?
1: Well, I think one of the things that's maybe worth Mm -hmm. saying is the flip side of that, that what we've been kind of establishing, that so much of what happens on Pet Sounds, he's already developing on earlier albums. I think what's innovative about Pet Sounds is how... You know, he's basically working with these session musicians whilst the rest of the groove are off on tour. But we mentioned earlier this Mm -hmm. sort of modular approach of like working on first working on the sound of each instrument one by one and perfecting the sounds that he's, you know, heard in his head and then Mm -hmm. creating this sort of bed of sound on which the lead vocals are going to be recorded. And then mm. kind of, you know, almost, I mean, you can see why the bands start kicking against it, because they're almost brought in as instruments, you know, yes. to, to play that's- these roles. And kind of, he's making so many demands on them in terms of like, you know, he they weren't allowed to rehearse, I think that's right, but they had to How's go through right? multiple takes. So he's act- mm. demanding that they get the sort of... Resonance and tonality of their vocals mm. exactly right,
0: and the the other Beach Boys were on tour, weren't they? Yeah, they, and they, they come, come back, back and, into yeah. this great yeah and, crazy his, and studio kind endeavor.
1: Of, a lot of people mm. have sort of referred to the creative process of Pet Sounds and, and certainly with Smile as something closer to like closer to the editing of a film than the making mm, of an album that's that you've got all these individual little pieces that you have to then edit together. Mm. And I think the hard thing was for the band was to come in and see these kind of and hear these kind of weird inverted chords and weird progressions and key changes and listen to instrumental tracks that had bicycle bells and dog barks and clanking coke cans and harpsichords on them and kind of and hear it as the same band that they'd you know absolutely been part of and also I think they were very protective of Brian so when he brings in Tony Asher as well that he's writing the lyrics with. I mean this is fascinating because you kind of realise that Brian is often at his best when he's got somebody else to kind of fashion his abstract thoughts. I mean Tony Asher was a former Mm. ad man and so you know Brian would sort of tell him these feelings and he put them into kind of almost ad copy. These succinct kind of lyrics Mm. that expressed it in a way that kind of people could understand. So that kind of you know that piecemeal sort of approach but also I think that we've said that kind of Brian's songs hint at a kind of sadness but with songs like kind of you know that's not me you start to get a real sense of sort of existential fear and that thing that we were saying about the Beach Boys how their songs can exist as pop and yet the longer yes. you stay with them yeah. the more you pick them apart you think that's not a pop no. song and there's a great story um, the Michael Moore film uh, Roger and Me um, has it, one of the guys in it is called Ben Hamper. He, he worked at the Flint um, sort of car factory, and he talks about having this nervous breakdown in the car park outside Flint, and he's listening to uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice. And he mm-hmm. says, I'd listened to Wouldn't It Be Nice all these years, and I thought, it's a nice, happy pop song. And then I realized that all the things that they're wishing for never come.
0: They can't have, yeah. yeah. maybe if we think and yeah. wish
1: and hope or pray, it might come true. Yeah. But it's all denied. And I think that little tale kind of for me sums up the genius of Brian at this point, that you can, these songs still work as pop and people dismiss pet sounds for being saccharine. Mm-hmm. They dismiss it for being kind of throwaway. And mm-hmm. no, the, underneath the surface, it's incredibly dark. And I think those, mm-hmm. it's there in those weird chord progressions and weird key changes, but it's also there in that, in the lyrics, you know that shift from innocence to darkness. Mm. The, the simplicity there is incredibly. It's it, so much of it's unresolved. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's kind of like when you when you were talking
2: about the Beach Boys being away on tour and how they came back to these kind of strange yeah. instrumental yes. constructs, one of the amazing things that, building on what I was talking about, the intro to California yes. Girls yes. before, was that um, he worked out a way of actually creating emotional tension um, and depth without actually using their voices. So, yeah. they, so mm-hmm. they must have come back and thought, oh my God, how much does he actually need us anymore? Yes. Not yeah. just because of his lyrical insights and the way that he'd moved away, yeah. but also because his his kind of um, scoring, effectively, yeah. on, mm-hmm. on something like Let's Go Away For A While, yeah. had, had a sophistication and a, and a kind of an emotional profundity, yeah. which meant mm-hmm. that it didn't need might love to kind of
0: da ba da ba da yeah
2: over the top of it you know because, because kettle drums can bring that same yeah, kind of absolutely, uh, and th- French th- horns those, particularly yeah, yeah yeah, it's all about the kettle drums uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah it's all unresolved it's all it's yeah. all this maybe it's the uh, restraint uh, sexual restraint that I was talking about before that it never mm. comes to a climax but exactly which is which is its pathos as well but yeah. it's
1: weird because you can see that lack of focus there as well because you spend so much time on recording it and and doing the instruments mm. and, and doing the vocals and then he basically dubbed it down in one day and that the, <laughs> uh, the initial that, yeah. version of pet sounds as, as these as fluffs and background noise and kind of it's and people had to go back to him and say this you've got to do it again Brian it's almost like that part of the job was no longer yeah. important to yeah, him the... because he'd created what he heard in his head he'd satisfied himself mm.
0: Okay, that seems like a good place to take a break and uh, tell you a bit about our sponsors, the nice people at Jaguar. You are listening to the Mojo Innovators podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. At Mojo, we're always learning new things from old about how musical history complements and informs our understanding of the best new records. Jaguar work the same way, and their collaboration with the premium audio brand Meridian shows how heritage values and a cutting-edge outlook can sit side by side in perfect comfort. Okay, are we feeling the acid yet? (laughs) Right, so today on the podcast, we're talking about Brian Wilson and uh, on his controversial masterpiece, Smile. So, Andrew, Smile was meant to be Brian's masterwork before it went horribly off the rails. What do you think he was trying to achieve with it?
1: Well, Wilson himself called Smile um, contemporary American music. He wanted to make the the point out that this was no longer pop music. but he also called it his Teenage Symphony to God. And it was conceived as, I suppose, a 12 a track concept album, but again, mm-hmm. assembled from short, modular musical fragments. I mean, the approach that he first used in Good Vibrations, I suppose, to, you know, the, yes. the, the so. clearest example. But mm-hmm. as we were saying earlier, it was kind of his approach was more like sort of film editing or, or music concrete, mm-hmm. you know, kind of it wasn't about. Seamless pop music. It was about showing the joins and showing these these different kind of stages of music. I mean, he references musicals, sound effects mm. albums, American theater, cowboy songs, doo wop, mm. barbershop quartets, uh, Warner Brothers cartoons. You know, the Great American Songbook, uh, Native American songs, or sort of Martin Denny style er- exotica rock and roll, big band music, country gospel. It's kind of, I mean, in a way, it's the sounds of Brian's childhood. You know, mm. it's the sounds of kind of a, a, a child, you know, watching the television and growing up in a world of yeah. American music. So you can see it maybe as kind of that regression to back to childhood, a sort of an impressionistic view mm. of that sort of pre- Beach Boys innocence. I mean, a place to hide in a way. Because
0: this is a very turbulent time in America, isn't it? Yeah, the Vietnam War's going on, and also, what? Just talk a little bit about his sort of the pressure that he felt to rival the Beatles.
1: Yeah, I I mean, arms race, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah, exactly. But at the same time, he wanted it to be kind of an expression of freedom. You know, kind of not. I mean, I think the the difference is that it becomes about personal freedom. If you look at kind of what the Beatles are doing at that time, they are cohering as a band. But Mm -hmm. Brian, I think, sees himself almost at this stage as like a lone individual trying to do it all by himself. Well, definitely. And I think when you were talking about it being almost a work of
2: music concrète, I think one of the Mm -hmm. critical things is that it isn't. Yeah. Because if it was something as formally sort of codified as that, then you might Mm -hmm. have had a better chance of sticking it all together in the yes. first place. The fact is that he didn't have mm. any kind of formal compositional system to be able to work mm. with the, the, the
1: surfeit of ideas that he had. It's why it's interesting yeah. that he had no way initially to, you know, put Pet Sounds down onto tape. The sort of the seeds are there yeah. for, for the crack-up that comes with Smile. It's like it's an idea conceived in the studio, and the pleasure, the fun, is creating all these pieces for the jigsaw. Yeah, but then yes, it's but how the do final I put the pieces together?
2: And also, and also, mm. what he was trying to do was genuinely radical. I yeah, because yeah. because when you list all those ingredients, yeah. it sounds mm. quite hokey. Yes, but it's like this this idea of something which becomes like the barbershop sublime, mm. which sounds mm. like a fairly ridiculous concept. Yeah, but actually, what he manages to do and what. At a time when people like The Beatles and a bunch of other bands were starting to look towards Eastern spiritualism to make transcendental music, yeah. mm. he took all of this sort of vaudevillian music and made that spiritual, yeah. made, made that transcendental,
1: which is such a strange are, thing to do. Comparison points yes. are things like Eric Aaron Copeland. Eric Copeland, yeah, yeah, exactly. and, mm. you know, And that... He's going back into his own past, but also the American past. But I'm
2: not ever mm. sure exactly how much he sat down and la- listened to Appalachian Spring or something yeah. like that. I don't know <laughs> but, whether
1: I don't. I've never read whether he actually did even, that. I don't even know if that's. You think important. it was instinctual? I well, think it's the fact that he's kind of that's what he's operating on. That he's going into, you know, the American frontier. It's American history, and the fact that he's mm. tr- using that as a place to find succor, you know, and kind yeah. of and 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 as you say, a kind of divine inspiration is utterly unique. It is.
0: We should mention Van Dyke Parks at this point too, yeah. though, because a lot of that kind of subject matter comes from his lyricism yeah. too, doesn't it?
1: And, I th- and again, mm. that also creates another reason for tension. We're talking about another vocalist coming in and sort of, yes. you know, usurping Mike Love's role. Well, people like Mike Love and Gary Usher and
2: Roger Christian mm. were es- essentially conduits yeah. for Brian's thoughts. I don't. Think, I don't think Van Dyke Parks. Van Dyke Parks very much arrived with his own agenda. Yes, it's like the columnated true. ruins domino agenda, <laughs> effectively.
1: <laughs> but, it, but you can see it maybe as in a kind of a sort of almost kind of cryptifying or obscuring Brian's thoughts because there's an emotional truth there in those in those songs. Yeah. Yeah, that but, still exists, but, the, you know, there is a, is a poetic sort of obscurantist kind of approach which, as well. Which,
2: which just adds to the f- further layers of complication. So yeah. you end up with this, this sort of endless sedimentary kind of <laughs> mess, which which, which, is impo- which which you can see it, it, it would send most people mad, I think, just, which, trying to, just trying to formulate something coherent out of that.
0: Which brings us nicely to the sandbox. The, uh, the sandbox, so, yeah. <laughs> so, the idea of bringing the beach indoors, yeah, yeah and well, just I part th- of his kind of cosmic scale ambition. What what was written in the sandbox, for well, instance? Well, there's
2: quite a lot of dog poo in there, I don't know, <laughs>
0: actually. It's like
2: yeah. Banana and Louie, I think, used yeah.
1: the sandbox for their own ends rather <laughs> Is that than. his uh, dog's rather, name? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. kind of transcendence for the dogs, maybe, <laughs> <Yeah. rather laughs> not for Brian. Yeah. Freedom of release. Shall we say. <laughs>
0: But we do get cabinescence and heroes and villains and and Child is you know. the
2: father of the man, you know, one of the most beautiful pieces Absolutely, of music yeah. And also, and also things like Miss O'Leary's cow, which, are, in spite of its anyway. bizarre, stuff. I love Mrs. <laughs> O'Leary's cow. Though. Do you? Like, yeah, I do. The, the, the fact that something genuinely terrifying can be made out of
1: Swanee whistles, yeah. I I is a remarkable. Slide whistles, yeah. Well I think you've made a really important point that there's something quite disturbing about smile. Oh, you know? Deeply. Yeah. Yeah. And something and, and something quite upsetting about it. And it's kind of it it's one of those things where you think you know, I'm en- we're enjoying talking about it now. Yeah. But, you know, how, how much is that related to kind of, you know, the, the, the pleasure? And I mean pleasure and not kind of enjoyment that you get from listening to it because there's so much that is deeply unsettling yes. about it. Yes,
0: I can it. assure you that, it, you know, as a psychedelic experience, yeah. it's way too fractured <laughs> yeah. to genuinely enjoy.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: At the same time, I, th- I think it's a fantastic listening experience, or at least the songs are. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, this might be a good time to mm-hmm. actually talk about whether Smile has ever worked as an album yeah. or whether, or yes. or whether yes. it's a yeah. bunch of great songs. Or whether Smile
1: has ever sort of existed as an album, you know, because yeah. there are, you know, the versions yeah. that are out On there. On
2: Darian like... Saranaj's hard drive, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I should say it's the guy in The Wonderments who's, his, who's been Brian's musical director for the best part of 20 years. now, yeah. right, yeah. I yeah. Who, who was the guy who... Um, mm-hmm effectively rebuilt all the fragments together. He was yeah. the mm. one who actually managed to put a kind of the scaffolding up yeah. on which to fit all those different elements. I and
0: mean, you've got to wonder, if we hadn't reached this point with the technology that we have now, whether he'd ever have been able to realise it with all yeah. those different fragments. Yeah. I mean, but once that, can... that
1: was part of its pull. That's part mm. of its fascination, isn't it? Definitely. That it is an incomplete text, you know, mm. that there's something un- always unresolved there, you know. It's making sense of excess. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And not
2: necessarily excess as we normally think about it in rock and roll, but uh, an excess of ideas, a yeah. surfeit of ideas. Yes,
0: a kind of amb- excess of ambition in... You know, yeah, really yeah. Nice. which yeah. is
2: commendable, you know, and, uh, and I, think, I think one of the greatest gifts and one of the great reliefs of Smile was that, that even though he never managed to make it, all that music or so much of that music actually came out, whether but on different records like surf Up well, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, or, you know, through... You know, my, my first real experience of, of being an obsessive bootleg collector was was buying, you know, ridiculous different versions of Smile, most yeah. of which had at least 25 minute versions of Good Vibrations, which I'm sure, I'm sure wasn't envisaged to fit on a 40 minute vinyl record in 1960.
1: But another one of the things that we need to consider in in relation to that is the fact that because of Smile... Um, both aspects of Smile, the ambition of Smile but also the collapse that comes after Smile the rest yeah. of the band have to up their game yeah, yeah. they yes. they do it because they have to kind of maintain this standard but also they they do it because Brian's not writing any songs anymore or, Absolutely. or the amount of Brian's songs that are coming out of the sandpit are you know kind mm-hmm. of very small so because they having have written mm. 150 10 second fragments yeah. for smile he's kind of basically <laughs> exhausted yeah, his
2: kind of creative energies but, for the
1: next few years but what's impressive is that they do they don't kind of say oh let's go back to being a surf band or something that they have this ambition now in bills yeah they all move and, on don't yeah, they yeah and those yeah. those albums sort of from you know sort of Smiley Smile to Surfs Up mm. are Oh, um, you know, and, and Holland and everything are incredible because they are. There's an aspect of each of them that is trying to be a version of Brian, and mm. that's what makes those songs so fascinating. They're not regressing; they're trying to maintain an ideal that Brian has established. And uh, you know, they do it with various degrees of success. But those albums are great, and I think the reason they're great is because you have this absence there mm. that they're constantly a trying to, had in to different fill. Ways. It's one of those
2: amazing. Situations that we see a lot in 60s bands, I think, especially mm-hmm. you, you think about British bands like the Rolling Stones or someone, where these groups ostensibly set themselves up as covers bands, yeah. and, and they had no assumption that they were going to work out to be great songwriters. And I think that's the same of people like Dennis, and uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Dennis especially, but yeah. Carl as mm-hmm. well in The Beach Boys, that they suddenly, out, out of business necessity, were forced to become... Psychedelically creative musicians. Mm. Yeah. And at a time when Andrew was saying that Brian, that they were forced mm. to try and create music that was similar in some ways to Brian's, Brian, of course, had suddenly decided to go in quite a different direction for the songwriting that he was doing. So instead of these mm. grand sweeping gestures, he was writing very tiny, domestic, yeah, in many ways banal mm. songs like Busy Doing Nothing yeah. on them. Um, Friends, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Which is basically his day. Yeah. yeah. And, and and the day of a man in, in you know, fairly severe lockdown.
0: Yes. Mm. I mean, still the kind of emotional autobiography that you were getting yeah. from pet sounds and smiles. Absolutely. But just transplanted. But, but
2: yeah, and, but instead of writing about first love, he's talking about exactly how the postman follows the path to his front door. Yeah. yeah. And, what, and what he's got to look <laughs> out for on the way, you know.
0: Obviously, the 70s were a quite troubled decade for the Beach Boys. Think about a song like Till I Die from Surfs Up. Uh, how does that reflect?
1: Well, one of the, the interesting things about um, Till I Die, I, I always felt mm. that it was a, written as an answer song to The Lonely Sea because it's kind mm. of that's the young Brian looking out to the sea as a kind of young man and kind of and, and, and first being aware of kind of melancholy and being alone and then. This is written um it was originally meant to be on the 1969 album, 2020. And uh it was played in the studio, and Mike Love listened to it and said, What a fucking downer. (laughs) (laughs) So he Brian basically packed it away and didn't do anything with it until August 1970. But I think he was he said he said that he'd been depressed and preoccupied with death, and he was Mm. looking back at out of that ocean again and, and just yeah. saw it as black and just saw himself as a speck of sand on it or so a, in many ways Mike's reaction cork. yeah in many yeah. ways
0: Mike's reaction was really quite in keeping with the sort of cosmic insignificance that Brian was feeling absolutely at that time. and
1: you know but Bruce Johnson called it the last great Brian Wilson song and i think one of the things that reason it gets so much attention is it just it encapsulates where he was at the time. I yeah. mean, and it, yes, a song like "Busy Doing Nothing" does because it's about <laughs> the banality of his day. But you suddenly get this point of focus where he just kind of realizes his insignificance. Mm. And but and it's also a song that kind of harks back to the harmonies of those early Beach Boys albums. It's you know, so it feels very much like a kind of. It's clearly not an end point. I mean, he has you know so many more creative years mm-hmm. ahead of him. But in terms of his involvement with that stage of the Beach Boys, it feels very much like a full stop. From if we take the Lonely mm. Sea as the start point, and that's the creative arc.
0: And so, John, when you interviewed Brian in uh, the mid '90s, how did you find him then? Well, it was
2: a, it was a really interesting time actually, because he he'd just come out of what was effectively a kind of hibernation at that point. He had mm. he suddenly had two records. He'd, he'd he'd been kind of released from the grasp of. Dr Eugene Landy is a uh, somewhat uh, over conscientious psychiatrist yes. shall we say and yeah. songwriting co-partner in the late 80s and had um, suddenly hooked up again with Van Dyke Parks to make a record, Orange Crate Art, and at the same time had made a record with Don Was, which was slightly, slightly confoundingly a, a bunch of studio, new studio versions of old Brian songs, which without Brian's production, but with Don Was's production, which didn't seem to make a, a huge amount of sense uh, aesthetically, but, Don but, fans. But, yeah. but but was still was still a really useful way of relaunching him into into, yeah. into the world, and a, and also a way of seeing him as a great songwriter, and and mm-hmm. a great artist, rather than that guy who used to be in the band who've been playing state fairs for the past fifteen years, which is what in sure. the interim Mike Love had turned the Beach Boys into. So mm-hmm. it was, yeah, he was he was really interesting. He was very lucid. He was quite depressed and cancelled the, the interview mm. two or three times. And we ended up going to his house in L.A. just before we went to the studio. He played Surfer Girl for me on the piano. Oh, wow. And he wrote a new bridge, which kind of interpolated bits of his song Love and Mercy into the bridge. Mm-hmm. And then when he finished it, he turned to me and said, I'll give you $100. I've been taping because I've been recording the interview. And he said, I'll give you $100 if you put that on the radio. And his manager was sort of going, "Uh, Brian, you don't really, you shouldn't really be saying that. But but he he was saying things like that. But
0: did you take uh, the money?
2: (laughs) I did. (laughs) No, I put it on the radio for free. Um, um, Mm. But no, there was a very clever thing that was happening there around him, which he was completely complicit in, which Mm. was repositioning him as this kind of from being this kind of relic into being one of the serious rock canon. And what they initially tried to do was to do it through things like the Don Was record, which didn't really work so much. But then as his relationship with his wife, Melinda, got better and he met the Wonderments who we were talking about yes, earlier,
1: mouth,
2: yeah. someone had the genius idea that this guy who had effectively made his artistic, serious artistic reputation by going off the road should go back on the road. And instead Mm. of doing all the kind of hokey gigs that the Beach Boys have been doing for so long, and in fact continue to do, he should be playing in the grandest concert halls in the world and recreating those records that had never been played live. So first Mm. of all, he did Pet Sounds, I think, first. That's Mm. right, yeah. And then in 2004, they took on the kind of gargantuan task of recreating Mm. Smile. Which we, one, I think, we're I think we're out, we were all there. Yeah. We were all there. It was our Sex Pistols
0: game. <laughs> 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 but I a mean, bit more th-
2: crying. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, that which obviously for Brian would be very therapeutic to finish, smile, and perform yes. it, and and very brave too. But is that enough artistically to satisfy an audience? Do you think, Andrew?
1: I think um, it really. I think one of the things that we've been talking about is the fact mm. that smile plays different roles for different fans. And I think for mm. some people that was incredibly important and, and culminative. And I think smile, you know, means and that sense of kind of closure, as people yeah, say, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and resolution yeah, so was good, incredibly right? important. Yeah. Yeah. And But I think also there was that sense with a lot of people of kind of, is this smile? You know, kind of, it's like kind it, of... The, yes, there's it inef- asked as
0: many questions as it answered. It did, it but, did. Yeah, I think there's inevitably was,
1: going to be... Those people who just were kind of, this is what I've been waiting for, and other people were kind of nonplussed. I mean, I I I I think the closure element means that everyone would have been so really,
2: everyone would have liked it to some greater or lesser degree, whether it was good or not. I happen to think it was good. In terms of actually gluing all those bits together, it was done in an amazingly logical way. That basically, Brian and uh, and Sahanaja and whoever Mm -hmm. else was involved in that process. Found the logical path through it, which which all those bootleg which all those bootleggers
1: had eluded. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really important point. And
0: and as much as anything, it just every single person in that room was just rooting for Brian because he has that effect on you, doesn't he? He's such a one of the genuine good guys. And I think
1: that also there was that you felt that support from the band as well. You felt that kind of weight of. Kind of musical, kind of assurance, but also kind of emotional as yes. well. That they yeah. were kind of they were there for him, and this was not going to screw up. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's like I
2: did. I do remember feeling slightly <laughs> guilty as we we stood up for yet another five minute sort of ovation <laughs> yeah. that we were going to kind of knock him off beam. actually yeah. because <laughs> right. because it, because the love was down. was almost overwhelming. Mm. actually, yeah. I think it
0: was quite. So just to ra- wrap up now. Um, what was Brian's legacy? What did he, you know, bring to music that nobody else had?
1: Well, I think one of the most important things is this idea of using the studio as an instrument. You know, previously Absolutely. you have the band on one side and the producer on the other side, mm. and the producer is there to make the band sound nice. And then suddenly you have this central figure in the band coming in and, you mm. know, wrestling away the means of production. <laughs> oh, you know, I hope from the, you is know, good. And... Yeah and basically saying this is my instrument this is what I play with and Mm -hmm. this is how I will create the sounds inside my head and that becomes so widespread throughout the 70s that it's almost you forget that there was an innovator there you forget Mm -hmm. that there was somebody Mm -hmm. who was doing this before everyone I think that was Brian Wilson there's there's Um, two
2: paths of seriousness Mm -hmm. aren't there really one one of which is the the stripped down kind of singer-songwriter whose earnestness and and, and, and his kind of uh, uh, heavy cachet comes from yeah, and going from a... from that emotional directness rawness an authenticity, and authenticity kind of, yeah uh, which 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 builds into americana but at the yeah. same time mm-hmm. Brian wilson is on this radically different path of americana which yes. is which is layered mm-hmm. and complex and is also Showing how pop music can be serious and hefty and weighty yes. because yeah. these aren't rock records, really. You know, no, we, sure. we
1: use rock as shorthand, but Pet Sounds is not a rock record. No, and it legitimizes no, so. production. You know, if you kind of look at kind of, you know, how previously maybe, you know, people would see Pet Sounds as saccharine or overproduced, and it basically mm. legitimizes production as a means of artistic expression. expression yes. And it's and it, no and, longer just yeah. mm. raw authenticity as mm. the means of artistic and, expression. And that that legitimate and the
2: serious and the critical kind of seriousness, which has kind of accumulated around Pet Sounds, has mm. actually legitimized a bunch of music that was made before it as yes. well. Because I'm not sure mm. that Phil Spector records were treated with quite the same kind of veneration yeah. and respect. They were seen as disposable pop records yeah, a lot. So. And then, and there, it, it's it's not just what what he's influenced of the music yeah. that that succeeded. Mm sounds it's
1: how he's made us rethink what we feel about the music that preceded it and the notion mm. of the producer as, a, as an artist and not yeah. sort of a, you know, a yes. jobbing engineer that the yeah. producer is as yeah, much absolutely. a creative artist as the musician. Yeah. Well
0: listen that's all we have time for today but uh, my thanks to Andrew Mail and to John Mulvey thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast please rate and subscribe uh, next time I'll be talking about Kate Bush It's in the trees. It's coming. It's the Mojo Innovators podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the Jaguar XE.